welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Schell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. I have been keeping a little outline on my desk for years in which I just, there's just deep lessons that I've, I, I feel like the Lord's shown me about the Holy Spirit that I, I felt somehow I need to someday address. I need to deal with this. Uh, I, I've been a Pentecostal since I was 12 years old. It's how I met the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the, the problem is we Pentecostals don't write theologies. We write tracts. And uh, so we've got tracks about how we came out of drugs or how we came out of crime and became Christian. And those are wonderful tracks to read. I enjoy them. But some, we need a, a deep foundation for what is the life of the Holy Spirit. And we have some. But the Lord has been putting things in my heart. There's just over the years as I'm studying the word and putting things together, I see these, I see these great, great foundation stones. And that's what I want to I take you through. And we started, we talked about who is the Holy Spirit. And then we began in the Garden of Eden, if you recall, and, and how Adam and Eve, I believe, were clothed with the power and glory of the Holy Spirit. That's why they knew they were naked when, when, when they had sinned, that, that whole thing left. And we said this, we said that God always comes back to uh, his original intention. God doesn't change his mind, how can he? When he has a perfect will, how do you change that without contaminating it? Without, without compromising it with something false or wrong. So he, he never changes his purpose. But he gets there a different way. He's very clever. And he will figure out a way. And, and he has done that with this. He, though, we, though we took what he started out by saying I, I, he created us for fellowship. He created us to be sons and daughters of God. That was the purpose. And he created us for the Holy Spirit. We were meant to be clothed with the Spirit and walk and depend upon the Spirit. You, and, you have lungs for air and you were made for the Holy Spirit. It is completely unnatural for you and me to try to function without the very presence of God at work in us. That's why we get in trouble. That's why we sin. That's why we are weak and sad and, and depressed. And all of these things is, is because we are made to be just drawing on the power and presence of God. It is the way we're designed. So we saw how the Lord brings us back. And his whole purpose is to bring us back into that relationship, that intimate relationship with the power of the Holy Spirit. Today I want to look at another aspect there's an important truth. The, God's presence will never abide in a place that's unclean. He's holy. And so for him to come and be somewhere, it, it must be holy. I'll, I'll show you that. That's a deep principle established through the Bible. Well, then how is it that God can come and dwell in us? And, and if we don't get a hold of the truths that, I, that I'm going to talk about today... Two things will happen. One is when you're, when you're asking for the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to come into you. If you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you say, I, I want that power. Come, Holy Spirit. You'll always say he won't come here because you'll be deeply conscious of your sin and your failure and that you aren't worthy. And the truth is you're not. But the truth is, if you understand what Jesus has done for us, yeah. he has made you worthy. 
And you got to get a hold of it. And the, and the second thing is, what happens when we sin? What happens when we fail and fall short and do dumb stuff? Because I trust you do too. <laughs> then there's that consciousness that I, I have sinned and I've done things wrong. And, and you think, God must leave me. He can't stay with me. I've had those conversations in the last weeks. With people who've said, I, I believe God's left me. I've sinned. I've done these horrible things. He must have left me. He can't be with a person like me. But if you get a hold of this foundation of what we're talking about today, you'll understand he will not leave you. He will not leave you. Even in your worst day. Holy Spirit, please open our understanding, our thoughts, our minds. Lord, just, just give us deep understanding. We give you, we give you tender hearts. And that which is true, that which is from your word, may it resonate, may it take root, may it be strong in us. And I pray for the grace to get out of the way, Lord, and let your word speak. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. The promise of the Spirit. A holy God cannot dwell in an unholy place. Would you say that with me? A holy God cannot dwell... In an unholy place. Everything about him is pure, loving, just, and good. So if human beings want him to come and live among them, with all of our impurity, lovelessness, injustice, and evil, we must first prepare a place that's suitable for him. And if we understand that principle, we will understand why God gave Moses such careful instructions about the tabernacle in the wilderness. When you get to that section of, of, of Exodus, you, you'll, you'll find just one detail after another. I remember years ago, we, I preached through Exodus. And I'm, I'm telling you, I thought to myself, I'll get to chapter 13, but after that, I'm out. I, 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 I do not know what to do with all of these details and all of this tabernacle stuff until I got to it. And then began to walk through it and began to see the principles there. Began to realize what I was, and Exodus has, has changed my life. I mean, it was just powerful as you go through and begin to understand the things. He, God wants this done this way, and he wants this there at certain distances. And, and one of the things that just I'll never forget uh, is, is how he prepared the priests. They were going to have to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so that the Spirit of God would not kill them, he had to go through a very careful uh, ordination process. They put oil and blood on them. You know, day after day after day after day. Uh, preparing them. They, they were right outside his presence. And so they had to literally get used to and, 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 and covered with, with the blood. Uh, atoned and, and, and with the power of the spirit. Just so they could stay alive as they walked into his presence. Isn't that powerful? And I learned all of these things. So when you read through it, and you see all of this that where, where God says, now, if I'm going to dwell with you, if I'm going to live among you as a nation, if we're going to go camping together through the wilderness, you've got to have a clean place for me. You have to have a place I can dwell. I will not come among impurity and uncleanness and dwell among you. If God were going to accompany his people as they traveled toward the promised land, they must first prepare a place which was not contaminated by influences or objects that he finds offensive. He told Moses, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Would you say that? I may dwell among them. That was the whole purpose of this. If I'm going to dwell among you, if I'm going to go with you personally, 
then you must have this clean place for me. If the people of Israel would obey his commandments, God would bless them in many ways, but none greater than this. I will also walk among you and my soul will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Later on, when Solomon built the temple, God said to him, concerning this house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances, and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will not forsake my people Israel. Yet it was not enough to merely build a place where God could dwell. He also required his people to prepare themselves. When he met with the nation at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with them which contained hundreds of commandments, 613 if, when people count them, that, they, that were designed to elevate their behavior and attitudes. See that word elevate? Elevate their behavior and attitudes until they became holy like he was holy. We can look at all of these rules and say, oh, it's just a whole bunch of rules. No, it's not. What God is saying is, I want you to be my children, and I want you to be like me. And so I've got to lift you up. I've got to lift you up. So he says, uh, let's talk about what you're going to eat. If you're going to be my kids, you're not going to eat stuff. You're not going to eat dead things you find by the road. How about that? No roadkill. <laughs> um, that's it. That's what he's talking about. I, I don't want you eating any roadkill. Okay. No, that's not for you. You're my people. Are we all right with that? Yeah. He says, and then he says, I don't, want you eat, I don't want you eating things that eat dead things. So stuff that eats roadkill, I don't want you eating that either. And then he says, I don't want you eating even, even, in, even in fish. I don't want you eating the stuff that eats the stuff on the bottom. Think about it. We, we, get, we think it's silly. Oh, it's all those kosher rules. Yeah, well, if you get down to the root of why he said what he said, it's like, oh, I see that. He said, I want you eating blood. Why? Because life is mine. I don't give life to anybody, says God. So he says, that's a holy. You leave that alone. I'll give you the body of the animal. I won't give you its life. It's mine. When you understand why he did what he did, he was taking those people and lifting them up. How about the sexual rules? He said, if you're going to be my people, you're going to live like this. You're going to be clean in your sexuality. And I, I, don't, I, don't, want you, I don't want you doing that or that. And I'm going down this list today. Uh, that's a whole other sermon. I, I, but I don't want you doing that or that or that or that or that or that. Some stuff in there that never mind. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you where it is either. But, but is he silly? Is he, is he being picky? No, he's not. He's lifting us up. Say he's lifting us up. Yeah, he's raising us up. He's bringing us up to be children of God. We have a high calling, a dignity, a purpose. We are we're a holy people. Say we're a holy people. Yeah, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. He says, you're going to be like me, says, says God. You're going to rise up. So it's about us becoming like him. If God's people would prepare a place for him to dwell, if they themselves would become holy, he would come to live among them and his presence would bring to them his shalom, 
which is the transformation that takes place in everything and everybody when God himself is near. Shalom. You do not want luck. Luck is a demon. And it'll put you in bondage. I promise you it will. It's a de- there isn't such a thing as luck. You don't want it, don't touch it with a stick. You want blessing. Grace is given, blessings earned. And it's earned by obedience. So what happens is when we walk with God and we walk in his ways... His presence comes over everything we touch, everything that has to do with us. So our lives are under the shalom of God. That's what shalom is. It's not just peace. It's this sweetness of life when his presence is touching it. Your family relationships, even your pets, your your, your fields and your your harvest and your, your herds and flocks, everything is touched By the presence of God. You want blessing, not luck. One young man said to me years ago, he said, I want what you have. And and what he meant was, he he knew my history. He knew I I grew up with a single mom and a broken home and all this stuff. And then he looked and he saw I I had my wife and my children and my grandchildren and the the blessing on my home. He He was looking at the shalom. And he said, I want what you have. And I said, and you can have it. I said, but you'll get it the same way I got it. (laughs) Do you understand? This isn't, it isn't magic. It isn't like God has some favors, a little pixie dust on you. I like you a lot. Let's, let's give you stuff. Let's not, I don't like you and I'm not going to give you that stuff, but I'll give you that stuff. You understand? You choose blessing. You can choose to be blessed, but it is not the easier way. Unless, of course, you, th- you, you think that it's easier to be blessed than it is to be walking in the bondage and the ugliness of sin. I think that's harder, actually. A lack of power. It didn't take long to discover that the law God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai was not able to make people truly holy. It could teach someone what was right, but it could not empower that person to do what was right. It was unable to remove the wrong desires that arise in the human heart or strengthen a person to resist the temptations produced by their own flesh. It could command someone to love their neighbor, but it couldn't supply that love. It could command someone not to lust, but it couldn't bring relief from that temptation. It could command a person not to kill, but it couldn't stop the surges of anger that swell up inside a person and produce murderous thoughts. No matter how successfully someone obeyed its rules about external behaviors, it brought with it no power to bring their attitudes or emotions into obedience. Even in the most zealous lawkeeper, outward obedience is always spoiled by inward disobedience. If anyone who is honest with themselves has to admit that they are unable to love as they ought to love, Or remain pure in the face of temptation. Or forgive offenses as completely as they need God to forgive them. And all of this failure naturally creates a great deal of frustration. Anyone who's bold enough to look inside themselves has to face the fact that they are falling short of God's standards. And therefore deserve his judgment. If they hide these wrong attitudes and pretend they aren't there, they become hypocrites. But if they acknowledge them openly, the law immediately condemns them as sinners. 
This is what the Sermon on the Mount was about. Jesus is dealing with people who are trying to earn their righteousness. They're trying to say, I'm going to keep the law, and God is going to, to, to love me for doing that. And I'm going to keep all of it, and I'm going to be very careful about this. But what happens when you do that is you, you can, to some extent, keep the outward parts. You can, go to, you can go to church on the right day. You can eat the right stuff. Uh, you can dress the right way. You can trim your beard the right way. You can, you, can, you, can, you can do the various things outwardly. But what about in here? What about the attitudes in here? So Jesus says, okay, let's go down a list of a couple of them. He says, so the Bible says don't, don't kill. So you've never taken a knife or a sword and lopped anyone's head off or stabbed them in the back. Good for you. He says, but if you hate them in your heart and dehumanize them in your heart, in God's thinking, you're a murderer. How about lust, he says. So you've never slept with anybody. Good for you. Have you lifted your eyes and looked at someone else with lust? Is it in God's thinking? You're an adulterer. What has he just done to us? He has left us hopeless. Let's look at this. This tension between the inner and the outer aspects of a person's life was a topic Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. He pointed to certain commands in the law of Moses which people inevitably fail to obey inwardly, even if they obey them outwardly. Here's an example. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, or worse, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Wow. He is, was warning his listeners that God expected them to obey the law internally as well as externally. So anyone who had been angry with someone else or said something degrading about another was forced to admit that by God's standards, they were murderers. Jesus' purpose was to show people who were trying to become righteous by keeping God's law that they could not do it. Even those who successfully obeyed it externally inevitably failed internally. And he was not trying to shame people. He was trying to awaken them to their desperate need for God's mercy. His words were meant to destroy any hope to which they might be clinging. That when they stood before God at the final judgment, he would reckon them to be sinless. Jesus was very deliberately trying to drive us all into the arms of grace. There's quite a bit now. Uh, it's kind of a, a new trend in Christianity. I mean, as of the last cycle. Uh, in which people are, are getting into more and more uh, legalism. Observance of various parts of the law. The idea is if I go to church on a certain day and I, go to, I, I eat certain things and I, and I dress a certain way and I, I do these things that, I'm, I'm, that I'm, I'm, I'm observing the law. Here's the problem. You cannot trust or hang on to the righteousness of the law and grace at the same time. You'll either grab Jesus or you'll grab the law. You say, no, I'm going to do both. 
No, you're not. You're a human. And there's something about the human heart that migrates one way or the other. It is impossible. Because what, what happens is say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, just do this. I'm going to go to church on, on a certain day. I'm going to eat certain foods, and I'm going to dress a certain way. Um, and and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just doing this as a, an act of worship. That's fine, as long as it's an act of worship. Problem is, after a while, if I don't go on that day, if I don't eat a certain food, or I eat the wrong thing, all of a sudden, I come under fear. I, come under, I, begin, I find myself sliding over where I'm trusting. The Bible says this, and listen to me carefully. You cannot have both. You will either trust Christ entirely, or you will trust what you do. But you may not have both. If you trust what you do, Christ will leave you. Paul says this. I'm not, this is not mine. If I trust Christ alone, I don't need the law in that way. I need it as a guideline morally. I need it to teach me about how to, how to please him. Those are all, it's a beautiful thing and a good thing. But I will use it as an instruction. I will use it as a training manual. I will not use it as a, as a ladder or a way of coming into heaven. Do you understand? Paul's testimony. Paul briefly summarizes his own journey toward this realization that he was unable to meet the standards of God's law in his letter to the church in Rome. In chapter 7, uh, he describes how the law forced him to admit that he was a sinner. Up to that point, he said he felt that he had been successfully keeping the law, but when he tried to obey one particular command that says, you shall not covet. Now, that's how we translate it, but the word actually there is lust, but since it's Paul who wants to say Paul lusted, so we call it covet. He discovered that he was unable to restrain that desire. In fact, the harder he tried, the worse he coveted or lusted. And then Paul goes on to explain that God knew that humans were unable to obey his law, but that he had sent it anyway because he wanted us to know how much we needed his forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul, Paul said, describes himself, I think, as a young Pharisee. And he said, I was doing fine. I was, I, I, I was, I was righteous according to the law. I, I lived out all of the things I was to do. All these external things, you see. He's doing everything external. He's got it all in order, doing all the right stuff. But there aren't just external commands in the law. There's commands about loving your neighbors, yourself. There's commands about not coveting or lusting. Uh, there's all of these. And so... He says, when I came to this command, it said, thou shalt not basically lust. So I said, I won't lust. And he said, the more I tried not to, the worse it got. If you've ever experienced this, it's like, like trying to contain a volcano. All of a sudden, the more you push this thing down, the more it starts rising and building inside. And he said, after a while, I was lusting like crazy. So he says, if, if you follow Paul, he takes this and then he says, but when I came to Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then I will explain to you in a minute. He says, and then God places in us the Holy Spirit. And now we have the power to walk in the holiness that he's asked us to walk in. Do you see this? Father's promise. How is it possible that after sending his law to show us our sin, 
and by that law exposing how unfit we all are for his presence, for that for God to announce through his prophets that a day would come when he would dwell inside his people. It seems impossible. If a holy God cannot dwell in an unholy place, and we've proven that not one of us is able to meet the standards of his law, then how could that ever happen? And yet he said it would. Listen. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Would you say a new covenant? That's a big deal. I'll show you in a minute. A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day which I, when I took them out by the hand to bring them to the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. He's pointing back to the covenant made at Mount Sinai, the law, the law of Moses. And God describes that as a wedding. He says, it's not just some business vow. He said, they stood before me and married me. And I was their husband and they were my bride. I married them. And I gave them this covenant and I said, here, I want you to come up and be holy like me. And they could not do it. They broke it, says the Lord. So, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. He says... I will be their God, they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. When the Messiah comes, when, when, the, when the, I come to the end of the age and I bring my restoration, I'm going to do a new thing, he says. Look, look, here's the next one. Listen to Ezekiel. For I will take you, Israel, from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh And give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit. See the word within? I've underlined it there. That's a, I will put my spirit within you. The word in Hebrew, cherev, means to put in, in, within the body. In the physical body. When Rachel had twins wrestling within her. Remember that? It was cherev. Within her. So it's not just figuratively speaking. It's when God says, I am going to put my Holy Spirit inside you. He's going to come and dwell within you. You are going to become the temple of God. Now, I want you to see this. That, that this is that, the word that Ezekiel uses. Because Jesus uses the exact same word. In a minute, I'll show you. My spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit, there it is again, within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. I will gather you, wash you, pull out the heart of stone. I will change your very desires. You will no longer be a rebellious person. You will love me and you will long to walk in my ways. I will literally pull out the heart of stone. The cold, stony, loveless, rebellious heart. Pulling that sucker out of there. And I'm putting in a new one in which you love me. 
Look, the whole gospel, the, gospel, the, the ways of, of God are designed for the new heart. If you give grace to the stony heart, it takes it as license to sin. When you give grace to the new heart, it gives it hope to go on. Did you follow what I just said? That's where the mistake is made, is we're often preaching to stony hearts, telling them about the mercy and grace of God, but they don't have the new heart. If someone hasn't really changed, if that new heart's not there, uh, they don't love the ways of the Lord. They don't long to please him. They aren't, it isn't the child's heart, but with a father. It's a different attitude. Listen to Joel. I will, it will come about after this, meaning, and Joel was talking about Israel's repentance and restoration at the coming of Messiah. It's all, it's all keyed to the coming of Messiah. That I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, is what he says. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will, and will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days. The son's promise. Repeatedly during his ministry on earth. The son of God promised that this gift of the Holy Spirit. Would be given to those who believed in him. After he was crucified resurrected and had ascended into heaven. He told his his disciples that what he was about to do would bring the promise of the Father. Say the promise of the Father. Father. Remember this, you see it in Acts 1, you see it in Luke, Luke 24. He says, I'm going to send upon you the promise of the Father. What promise? This one. The one we've just looked at. That the day would come and God would pull out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and fill us with his Holy Spirit. The day would come when he would make us holy and dwell within us. That's the promise he's talking about. Meaning that by his cross, he would remove our uncleanness so that God himself could come to dwell not only with us, but literally inside us. In effect, Jesus said we, he would prepare us to be a holy place, a suitable habitation. A clean tabernacle where God could dwell. Listen to how he said this. Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures said. What scriptures? Well, I've just shown you several. That's what he's referring to. From, and, the, and then he quotes. You don't realize it unless, you, unless you've looked at the words. You don't realize that he is now pointing exactly to Ezekiel 36. And he, he says, from his innermost being. Would you say that? Innermost being. Now, the Greek word there is koilia. It means exactly what karev means in the Hebrew. It, koilia, it's, it's your intestines. It's your, you know, the, the King James translated as bowels. Have you ever had a little problem if you read King James? Like, your bowels will be moved with compassion. I'm thinking, boy, I don't know. Sure, I want that, you know. <laughs> uh, um, thank you. Um, it's, it's trying to translate that word. Because it does mean that. It means your body cavity. This is what's important. When he says, when Jesus says, is anyone thirsty? He says, if you believe in me, out of your body cavity, out of the very body, within your very body will flow rivers of living water. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God, the unlimited Spirit of God will come and dwell in you. And he's pointing to exactly what Ezekiel said. He's not inventing a metaphor. 
He says, as the scripture said, that's going to happen to you. I will ask the Father. Oh, pardon me. I need to read the rest of that. He spoke, this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What do you mean the Spirit was not yet given, John? Was there no Holy Spirit around? Of course there was Holy Spirit. We, we, we saw that you had all kinds of things. You had, you had prophets like Elijah having gatherings where it was so powerful that Saul would walk into it and you know he's kind of a a bit of a toad, um, whatever you call it. You know, he's, he's hardly your spiritual man. And the power hits him down. He goes three days, he's prophesying. That's, they're not even Pentecostals. <laughs> you got that much power. But, but John says, for the spirit was not yet. For Jesus was not yet glorified. What do you mean the spirit's not yet? This he hasn't come inside his people. I will ask the Father, said Jesus, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you at this point. But he will be where? In you. Behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. On the day he ascended into heaven, the resurrected Jesus commanded his disciples to wait for what he called the promise of the Father. He reminded them that he had spoken about this promise many times during his ministry. And we have seen some of those references. And then, so no one would mistake which promise he meant. He pictured what would happen to them when it arrived. He said what God would do was very much like what John the Baptist had done when he immersed people in water. He said in a similar way, God would immerse them in the Holy Spirit. And what the prophets had promised would take place. And that baptism arrived 10 days later on Pentecost. And from that day forward, it has been offered to all who will call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Peter said it on that day, to as many as are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Receiving the promise. How, but how is it possible? How can a holy God dwell inside people whom the law condemns? People who are unclean in their thoughts, even if they manage to bring their behaviors into obedience? Jesus revealed the answer to that question on the evening before he was betrayed. He and his disciples ate a Passover meal together. And when the meal was finished, he picked up a special cup that was meant to be taken at that point in the ceremony. And filled it with wine. And said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. By passing that cup to them, he was asking them to believe that because of the death he was about to die on the cross, they would receive the new covenant which the prophets had promised. If the disciples drank that cup, it meant they believed that their sins would be forgiven and remembered no more. That God would take out the heart of stone and give him, give him a heart of, that loved God and longed to obey him. 
And that the Holy Spirit would come to dwell inside him and teach him to walk in God's ways. By drinking that cup, he was saying, I believe. You, you see this? There we are in the upper room. Uh, we've, we're, this is hours before he will be arrested. And then crucified by 9 o'clock the next morning. He, he takes, the, he's serving them this Passover meal. He comes to the third, third cup. It's the one that's after supper. And it's called the cup of redemption. He picks this cup, fills it with wine, holds the thing up, and he says, this cup is the new covenant. It's not, he, he's pointing to Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, God says, behold, I will give you a new covenant after those days. So when Messiah comes, and here's Messiah holding the cup up. And he says, behold. And he says, this new covenant is in my blood. Meaning the death, the violent death that I'm about to die on the cross will bring that to you. And then as he takes this cup, he says, now drink from it. And he passes it to him. And if you drank that cup, it meant you believed that his death on the cross would bring you the new covenant. It still does. Every time you and I take communion, we're picking that cup up. That's what you take. When you take that cup, and, and it is the cup of the new covenant. Say cup of the new covenant. It's not just a cup. It's not a cup of blood. It's a cup that says by his blood, by his violent death, that's what blood means, by his violent death, the new covenant will be given to us. It's the cup of the new covenant. And you say, Lord, I believe you have given me the new covenant. No longer do I live under, under, the, under, under, the, under a, a different kind of law. You have now come and written your law on the fleshy tablets of my heart. You have now come and, and there is not a, there's not a lesser or a greater. All of us shall know you for we are full of your presence. And our sins will be remembered no more. When I take that cup. And so as he passed it to him, he says, do you believe? And when they drank that, they said, yes, sir, we believe. We believe that you're bringing us the new covenant. Paul explained to the church in Rome what Jesus did to make it possible for the Holy Spirit to dwell inside the listener. Listen. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. What couldn't the law do? We've had a good look at it now. Couldn't make us holy. Yeah, could, could kind of polish up the outside, but we're still full of dead men's bones. <laughs> you know, you, we've still got that, that, that stuff inside. It couldn't fix us. It couldn't make us holy. It could just uh, uh, show us that we weren't. For what the law could not do, said Paul, weak as it was through the flesh because of our flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness. Now look what it says, the likeness of what? Sinful flesh. Say sinful flesh. When Jesus became a man, conceived in Mary, he didn't just put on the appearance of a human. He put on the same kind of flesh you have. Now, his spirit wasn't separated from God. He's, like a, he's the second Adam. He didn't come with a separated spirit. He came, he came joined to the Father. But the temptations in him, the weaknesses, the, the, the things that you deal with, he had them all. He had a body like yours. And there was a purpose to that. Not only to show that he would resist temptation. But listen to this. 
Paul's, I'm going to show you in a minute. Paul says he came to die in a body like ours so that he could redeem our bodies. He paid for the sin in our flesh. Has your body been used in bad stuff? Come on, there was more than four of you that I, it's, I, I've been here too long. You can't fool me. Mine too. It has, hasn't it? I mean, not only have you, have, you, have, you, have you thought stuff, you've done stuff. And so as we do that, our body's contaminated. We are no longer holy. We are no longer a fit place. Our bodies are, are contaminated by the junk. How about your mouth, your lips? Oh, let's get personal. <laughs> have those lips of yours said words they shouldn't say? Well, they're not fit then to, for, for God to speak through. Has your heart thought, your mind thought stuff? Have your body been used and stuff? You see what I'm saying? Our flesh is contaminated. So G, Paul is going to say it. Well, let me let him say it. He says, he says, he, in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering, literally it's, it's peri hamartia, uh, on behalf of sin, he condemned sin, look at, in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law, perfect holiness and actions and attitudes, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, God cleansed the flesh of our bodies so that the spirit could live inside us, so that we would have the power to obey him. Why don't you read that, that, that right there with me? In other words, God cleansed the flesh of our bodies so that the spirit could live inside us, so that we would have the power to obey him. The good news, here's the good news. By faith in Jesus, you and I have been spiritually joined to him in his death on the cross, and that means that not only has he paid for our sins, but that he cleansed the very flesh of our bodies so that we are now a suitable habitation for the Holy Spirit. You and I need to lay hold of that fact and not let go. All of us are aware that at times we fail to obey God's holy standards, whether externally or internally. But if we lose sight of what Jesus has done for us, we can fall back under condemnation and feel unworthy of his presence. Especially in those moments, we must remember we are clean because of his blood, his death on the cross, not because we successfully kept the law. Let me say this really clearly. On your very best day, you don't deserve the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let's say you have a fabulous day. I mean, you are giving generously. You're tipping well. You are, you are, everything out of your mouth is edifying. I'm just picturing something. You, you haven't a bad thought, a mean thought, a, 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 nothing in you. You've just had a great day. And you still don't deserve. You got to get a hold of that. As long as you think it's tied to your behavior. You're going you're to go up and down. And you're going to be wrong all the time. The Lord only is willing. The holy God is only willing to come and dwell in, this, in these, these, these temples, these, these bodies of flesh. Because Jesus Christ has redeemed them. Amen. He has paid for my sin. So he comes inside me and listen, and he doesn't leave. 
even in my worst day. Even when I've had a horrible day. He doesn't leave me because I'm clean because I'm joined to Christ. It is only because of Jesus that the Holy Spirit can dwell in our innermost being. We must not allow a troubled conscience to prevent us from welcoming God's power to strengthen us in our weakest moments. We must believe what the prophets promised. We must believe what Jesus announced. We must understand what Paul explained. We must trust in the continuous atonement of Jesus Christ so that when we sin, we won't think the Spirit must leave us. He does not. Even when we fail, we are clean before God because we are joined to the one who is clean, the Holy One of God, Jesus. If we understand that fact, it will allow us to confess our sins quickly and boldly and call on the Spirit to come and help us. A pillar of fire. On the day of Pentecost, a pillar of fire appeared over each disciple's head. It was a symbol that every Jewish believer would have recognized immediately. Do you remember this? It's Acts chapter 2. Uh, they're all gathered. Jesus has told them to wait in the city for the promise of the Father. All right, so they're praying. They would gather regularly, daily. It sounds, looks like that's all they're doing all day. I think it's men and women. It's children. Uh, they're gathering this upper room. There's at least 120 of them. And they're probably confessing their sins. They're waiting on the Lord. They're worshiping. They're, uh, they're, 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 they're waiting on, he said, wait, and they're waiting. And all of a sudden it says, they heard a sound. And it was a sound like a, like a, like there was a great rushing sound, like a wind. And this sound from heaven came toward them. You could sense it coming toward them. And then it surrounded them. It doesn't say it was wind. It says it, it, it like a wind came and rushed and surrounded them. And then, and, then, and then it says that this great thing, column of fire came in the room and it divided itself up. So this, this big ball of fire, pieces of it, as it were, start going and it, it came over every single head. Young and old, male and female, this, 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 this little pillar of fire came over their head. What does that mean? Why did he do that? It was a symbol that every Jewish believer would have recognized immediately. When Moses prepared the tabernacle in the wilderness, the Lord showed them that he had come to dwell there by placing over it a cloud by day and what? A pillar of fire by night. Actually, it says at night you could see fire was in it all the time. It's what Moses says there in Exodus. So the thing was, there was this kind of this column that looked like cloud in the day, but at night you could just glowed. The, the fire was in it. So when the fire appeared over every head, those disciples knew that God was saying, this is now my tabernacle. It's clean. Here is my dwelling place. Do you believe that? There is a pillar of fire. Over our head. It is so important. That we get a hold of this truth. Because the devil's a thief. I'm going to tell you. His whole goal. He, the reason he tempts you as hard as he does. Is to get you. Con, 
to get you guilty and ashamed and to take your boldness away, to have you begin to doubt that God is with you and begin to hide from him. He wants us just like Adam and Eve to hide in the bushes, run away from God. He's, he's trying to drive us apart because as long as you and I are, are in the Lord, as long as that we're confident in who he is and that we're in him, we're really a danger to hell. We are, we are, we are, we are, we are we're the thing he hates the most. See, this is how God has planned to win the world. It's through spirit-filled believers, men and women, full of God. And he takes them like seed and casts them on this soil and spreads them all over. In every, every, every neighborhood, every job, every school, he begins to just put his seeds all through that. And the life comes forward. So the devil's going right at this thing. So you and I need to really stand on it. That's why I think the, I actually started a different direction and the Lord took it right this direction in this message today. So that has to get established in, in you. That Jesus Christ has made me clean. He has made you clean. And that means the Spirit of God comes and he dwells within us. He, we have been given Christ. And when you have Christ, you have everything. He withholds nothing from you. Now, we need to receive that. There's a human side of this. I need to receive what he's given me. I need to open up and lay hold of it. He may have given it, but I haven't taken it. That's another sermon. It is. But today, why will he come? Why will he come in you? Why will, he, why will the Spirit of God come and dwell inside of you and bring shalom? Why do you have a good future? Why will you be blessed in the land of the living? Why will you see the goodness in the land of the living? Because the shalom of God will be over you. Why? Because the spirit of the Lord will dwell in you. He'll guide you and he'll be with you. and Strengthen you in all your ways. Holy Spirit, this day, we welcome you. You might just, if you just over your heart or... My brothers, you might have put your hand on your belly even because that's the place the Bible keeps pointing to. Just say, Lord, I welcome you in my innermost being. You have cleansed me, Jesus. You have cleansed my sinful flesh. You have made me a, a clean temple, a tabernacle for the presence of God. I welcome you, dear Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that you would never leave me, but that you would be with me forever. I am so glad. Come now with your gifts, with your power, with your conviction, your teaching, your encouragement, your guidance. I follow you and depend on you. You are my gift, the promise of the Father. I receive you now, in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.